0: Hi, everyone. This is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Anatoly, great to get you on Real Vision. I've been after this for a while.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Not at all. I mean, I've been fascinated by what we're up to since we met a while ago in Utah. And I heard you speak and I'm like, wow, okay, there's a lot going on there. But before we get into all of that, I know a lot of people know your story, but a lot of people don't. And your story is actually very important to Solana itself and why you got there. So do you want to give a bit of your background, your crypto journey and how the hell you decided to come up with the whole idea and the basis of of Solana? I know you've probably told this a few times, but there's a lot of people who watch this.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, the origin story. So, <laughs> I spent most of my career at Qualcomm. I was there, you know, from 2003 f- until like 2015. Um, when I started, I was working on like those flip phones, two megabyte devices, like the the really dinky things. But I ended up a uh, lead kernel engineer in this platform called Brew, uh, which was built by Qualcomm, and it was the first thing that ever had like any kind of any kind of developable traction. And I remember there was this application jammed at bowling that hit like 2 million app downloads. And this was maybe 2008 or something like that. About 2005 before the iPhone. And like three years later, iPhone came out and just killed everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I was there, like, I think in the most exciting part of the, of the mobile industry. And 2017 rolled around and I saw that fees on Bitcoin were really like, going to like $60, $70 per transaction. So Bitcoin conferences stopped taking Bitcoin to buy tickets, which is kind of funny.
0: But why did you care about Bitcoin at this point?
1: I heard about it as an engineer like in the early days. I even thought about, I tried mining it a bit with CPUs, thought about like building my own like GPU mining and stuff. But as soon as I would kind of get interested in like building something for it, somebody else would have already came out with it, you know, like... uh There was an ASIC project uh, that promised to ship people dedicated ASICs, but they kept them for themselves for like six months and mined all the advantage with them, and then they shipped them. (laughs) That was like, (laughs) I thought thought that was like a very pure crypto experience. You can't, you can't get better than that. Rug pulled by them. Yeah, (laughs) in the in the early days, basically. But like what I. Thought was really interesting in 2017 was Ethereum because of the smart contract side. And it really reminded me of like early mobile days. Nobody thought that mobile phones should be computers and they should run apps. People thought that they were voice only, very similar kind of thing there. I kind of saw it as a new way for developers to write a new kind of code. Smart contracts just were weird and interesting and like it didn't make sense what they were good at. But I Kind of thought that they were good at something, and <laughs> and <laughs> that's what like kind of got my like got me way more interested in, in crypto than anything else. And um, I had a side project with a friend of mine, later became one of the co-founders, uh, mining crypto in the background while we were building deep learning hardware. And I had two coffees and a beer with him at Cafe Soleil in San Francisco, and we we're talking about mining and proof of work and consensus, and. Um, I had this eureka moment that there's a way to generate proofs for time. And I didn't know what to Google, but these are called verifiable delay functions. Had I known how to find these things, Solana probably would have never happened because I would have found that like amazingly smart folks out of Stanford have been working on these things <laughs> forever. <laughs> but <laughs> I thought that I had something, and um, that was really what spurred me to go and uh that I literally like called a bunch of my friends for Qualcomm that worked with me on Brew. I was like, this is a chance to build another platform, a new, a new kind of operating system and let's go do it. And surprisingly, a bunch of them joined me. These were like super senior folks with 10 plus years of experience, but it's pretty rare for them to like you know leave their ten-year jobs um, But at that time, uh, Broadcom was trying to acquire Qualcomm. Morale was slow. Literally, the CEO to call President Trump to stop the acquisition. (laughs) So it was like a perfect timing on my part. (laughs) And uh, a lot of amazing folks joined and we built Solana.
0: How much of your telco experience allowed you to build Solana? Because it's, again, it's an easy thing to say. Oh, yeah, we had this idea and then we built it. The reality is never that easy, right?
1: (laughs) A lot of the kind of the protocols felt very familiar, like the communications protocols, because you are dealing with. Massive number of um, states and connections and users anytime you're dealing with like LTE or CDMA or anything like that. It's just, those are, I would say, more complicated than consensus. And it just felt like um, similar. Like we were like not out of, out of, uh, like fish out of water or anything like that. And the ways to make this network fast really were based on a lot of our experiences as engineers. We were really kind of this idea that. You know this. I don't know if you heard of the trilemma. This is something that Vitalik proposed, and there's a trade-off between performance, security, and decentralization. So you could you can kind of make the system. You can kind of pick two. Um, and what you mean by decentralization is the number of participants in the network. So you can and like what you mean by security that how hard is it to make it inconsistent? So when you have this trilemma, you are you're kind of picking two. Uh, Two of these. And the only, this trilemma really only applies if you are exceeding the bandwidth of the network. So that means that uh, the number of, uh, the amount of data that's being replicated through the network uh, is limited by the connections that each one of these machine has. Um, so if all of your machines in the network have one gigabit, you should be able to use all of that up and transmit a lot of information. But Ethereum and all these other networks were not designed to use like even 100 megabits, let alone one gigabit or more. And us as like a bunch of Qualcomm engineers, we were like, well, we were like, you know, 5G is one gigabit just cellular. (laughs) That's going to force 10 gigabits to the home, 40 plus to data centers like a standard. So why don't we build a network that at least uses that much and then see what happens. That was really kind of our premise was that A lot of the other approaches on the market were really trying to um, tackle the trilemma with uh, a lot of complexity and like very academic solutions. But it wasn't clear that they would be able to solve it in such a way while making the network cheap and fast and easy to use. And doing like the problem like kind of the old-fashioned way, or the way that you know a bunch of hardware engineers would do it, makes the nodes more expensive, but it definitely solves it. And if the hardware is the only expensive part, it gets cheaper every two years by 50%. You know, there's always and always more, more organized sand. <laughs> so that was really kind of we thought organized like if you can man. get it to yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you can get it to work with hardware, you're basically done because the rest of the, you know, the hardware industry is gonna catch up to you.
0: And what is explains to people the idiot proof version of what proof of time is versus you know, proof of state, proof of work.
1: Yeah, everything has to be a proof of something. We call it proof of history. And it's really this thing called a verifiable delay function. And it's a pretty clever thing. It's a mathematical, uh, it's, it's a chunk of data, basically, that uh, this data structure, when you look at it, you can infer how much time was spent generating it, it because there's limits how fast computers can go. And based on those physical limits, There's no way for anyone, no matter how much money they have, unless they build a faster chip to speed it up. And building a faster chip means outcompeting TSMC or Intel. And that's like, you know, upwards to $50 billion these days to build a faster fab. So there's a limit to how fast you can build a computer, even with cooling and everything. And the trick is to create a mathematical function that is sequential so it cannot be parallelized. Uh, and that's a somewhat tricky part because you have to make it that, but also make it verifiable. So, when you generate this data, you need to be able to verify it in some amount of time that's faster than it takes to generate. Otherwise, it's a pretty useless uh, data, pr- pretty useless proof. And our construction is extremely dumb, and it was like one of the most trivial ones you could build. And not even being researched anymore because it was so trivial. But if you're familiar with SHA-256, that's the cryptographic hash function that Bitcoin uses for security. It's a very standard hash function used everywhere in cryptography and basically any, anything you do on the web. Anytime you sign, like when you see that like little lock on your URL bar, that's has encryption behind it. It's probably using SHA-256 as the hash function. enable that encryption. The way that we run it is we run it sequentially. So when you run it, its output is the next input, and you keep running it in this loop. And because it's cryptographically secure, there's no way for you to parallelize it. There's no way for you to know ahead what the result is going to be 100 iterations. And there's no way to make it any faster. But the way you verify it is you kind of checkpointed every 1,000 iterations or 100,000. And then Those checkpoints are part of the data that you transmit. And when I receive it, I start this process in parallel and as many cores as I have. And then I verify all of them in parallel. So in real time, it takes me less time to verify than it takes somebody to generate. But I thought this was like a really clever thing because there is no arrow of time in uh, mathematics. When you, you know, often physics equations, when they're described in math, they work forwards and backwards in time. There's no, there's no nothing really that says that time moves forward, but this is an inherent process that only moves forward, and it's a pretty wild think of thing to think about. It <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, is the universe if it's simulated, is it driven by this kind <laughs> of process that's only sequentially moving forward? Is that why we don't ha- like we can't reverse entropy and all these other things? And that like the eureka moment was a uh, Pretty wild experience for me. I was, I would say, manic for like four days, couldn't really sleep, or talk to my wife, and she had to like sit me down. And,
0: <laughs> and then, so what you solved was something that was essentially fast and secure, right? And how fast did you think it was going to be? And and we'll talk a bit about where it is now, but what kind of TPS, what, what were you thinking it was going to be there? And what, what was that compared to anything else at the time as well? Because that's important.
1: We are very ambitious. And uh, on the back of our envelope, we thought that with hardware at that time, we could get it to run. We called it 710,000 transactions per second at a one gigabit. And we got to about one tenth of that, <laughs> which is still really, really good. And how's that compared to ETH, for example, just so people can frame that? Uh, Ethereum um, can do about 20, I think, 20 to 30 transactions per second right now. And Bitcoin's about seven ish, and there's modern networks that do of hundreds. When you look at Solana as it's running today, um, its normal load is about five to six hundred transactions per second. That's just like what it does on the on, on a just from applications. But the capacity, as we can measure it, um, really depends on the hardware that's deployed and what connections it's running at. We have a testnet. That's even bigger than their mainnet with the same kind of hardware, similar hardware, I would say, and similar operators running it. And there we can try to spam it and try to knock it down. And we've seen uh, tests there perform over 15,000 TPS. Wow.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell with shopify you'll harness the same intuitive features trusted apps and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands sign up today for your one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech all lowercase that's shopify.com slash tech let's talk a little bit about the the issues that the chain has had as well before we start moving into the future a bit more because it's always cuts stuff that comes up with solana you know there's been a few times the change had to be halted talk through that process what's going on and and how are you guys thinking about that
1: this is like the our biggest challenge uh which is maybe the the one that i like to have because it, it's it's all these challenges are coming because we have users and uh, the chain is is uh on a daily basis when you look at it in normal app, transactions from applications from users just from people using the network when you look at those that was about 30 million transactions per day. 30 peak day was like 65 million. That's more than than all the other chains combined. Binance Smart Chain is one tenth of that. I think Ethereum is one one-thirtieth. And because of this load, we kind of see things that we didn't expect. And we were a bit, I think, short-sighted in the kinds of attacks people would, would throw at the network. And what we started seeing are bots that are. Designed to snipe mints like NFT mints. This is all because of NFTs. There's a some auction for some NFT, and people want those NFTs so much that they figure out how to create these bot armies that generate 100 gigabits. And once that's like 10 to, you know, I think some people have seen 10 million uh, packets per second being submitted to a validator. Wow. And if there's a bug in any one of these validators where memory grows you know, really, really quickly or some, some, something that we didn't do well for that load, um, that validator could shut down, right? Could break, could run out of memory for whatever reason. And um, if a third of them do that, then the network is basically stalled until some um, manual intervention brings it back up. So that has happened a couple of times. And not only that, there's also been congestion events where there's enough spam, but it's not enough spam to knock it over, but it's preventing users from using it. So that's been, I guess, our curse. But it's because we did, like, the network is so cheap and fast that there's enough users and applications that uh, that is driving that. Um, and it's one of the really mo- most frustrating problems because the release process for these networks. That's the closest thing I've seen in software to how a chip is built. You know, Once the chip is out, if there's a bug in it, you're kind of screwed, right? You've taped out the wrong thing. It's uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to fix those bugs. Um, So once there is a release, like 1.9 was plagued by these. We had 1.10 baking on testnet. We're verifying it. We're getting it through audits. And we knew that it was going to address some of these fixes. But that time to do it right and make this release is like... 10 weeks, right? So for those 10 weeks, it just sucked. Like you as, enge- like us as engineers, we're like, no, we can like stuff is going to get fixed. Uh, and it's hard to predict how well the fixes are going to like have impact on the, on the problems you're seeing. But luckily one that shipped and a bunch of these issues have been solved and there's a, a bunch of technologies that are being enabled to, I think, really address a lot of the reliability problems to the point that I think we can stop calling it Maynard beta and just call it Maynard.
0: yeah and i think you know i've always taken the view of it it's really interesting because i don't ever look at anything in its current state particularly in this world because to do that is ridiculous because you know the the pace of accelerated change and improvements and iterations is so fast that you have to say is this likely to be resolved or not resolved there may be other problems and other issues that come that's yeah. fine right and that's how I look you know, I, I've always looked at it and I, I saw this happening and I thought, huh, I've I find that a positive signal because it's not <laughs> because what it means is we see issues, we, you can get them solved and work on them. Now, whether the fix comes out in a month or a year, you know, it depends what it is.
1: But yeah, I
0: don't like it because, you know, the yeah, you know, the Bitcoin world doesn't work that way, or at least hasn't for a long time.
1: Yeah, Bitcoin has had has different issues. It's designed, you know, to be extremely resilient um and some some things that are normal for Bitcoin like when uh, a bunch of Chinese hash power shut down, there there were times where there are 2 hours between blocks and Bitcoin. And that's totally fine. If there's 2 hours between blocks and Solana, the network's dead because it's designed to make a block every 400 milliseconds. So like pager duties going off, people are trying to figure out why like how is this possible right so you kind of have once you make a faster network the failure case is different than one on something like bitcoin or ethereum right even though in both cases the data is never lost you you're never um, you're never you never threaten the state like the actual thing that the network is securing is this copy of the ledger that's replicated on solana it's close to you know 4,000 times, and Bitcoin's about 12,000 times, and Ethereum's like 6,000 times. That's the security of the network. That's what you're trying to protect. As long as that state is replicated and at least one of those copies survives and is able to tell the world, no, look, here's the valid copy. You have all this cryptographic signatures to prove it. Everything is fine in terms of the security of the network. But reliability, when you've designed something to run like at a 400 millisecond step, it's totally different than something that runs at a ten-minute step like Bitcoin. So we have a, uh, you know, just a whole different set of challenges than uh, a network like Bitcoin.
0: One of the things that you know you've probably heard that uh, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time looking at Metcalf's law and how to value these networks, and that's when Solana really got onto my radar screen because it's the only thing since ETH that I've seen where we've seen so many users accelerating such a pace over time, you know, it slows up and slows down depending on what's happening in the market, with the amount of connectivity between the nodes, i.e. the developer activity and other stuff going on. How the hell did that happen? Because it, it, it's pretty extraordinary. It was quite a big breakout versus almost any other chain, right? I think the only one Polkadot has something similar, but not in the same way with end users. They've got quite a lot of developers. How, how, how did that happen?
1: we got lucky in a couple decisions I think um so we never raised a ton of money in those early days we you know are we were always kind of had 18 to 20 months of runway our competitors raised hundreds of millions of dollars we had like a big break where we raised 14 in like the the summer of of 2018 so we never had enough runway to to like build EVM compatibility or anything that wasn't like purely necessary to show that the network was so fast. So we had a our own set of ling- like our own language, smart contract language, and engineers are naturally curious and that was like I think a really good decision. Had I had more resources, we probably would have built EVM compatibility and then we would have been one of the 10 EVM chains trying to compete with uh, you know L2s and Ethereum itself and like a whole bunch of other like things the other thing that we made the right decision was that um when we were launching we launched uh March 16th like we announced our auction I think March 9th or March 10th or something like that, uh, the network went live. Three days later was the double black swan. Everything in the market crashed. Bitcoin dropped and the S&P 500 dropped by uh, by 70%. This is 2020 March. I, we were just so exhausted from getting to the point that we nobody wanted to delay. So we just went for it. And that was another, I think, lucky decision because we were just a hair earlier than all the other Next Generation chains, earlier than Polkadot. Than Binance Smart Chain, than anyone else. And because we were new and had like new properties, that I think got the ball rolling with devs. Like devs are naturally curious and they want to try new things. You give them new tools, they'll go start messing around. And just being, I think, you know, these these are like decisions that are really hard to predict, will have that much of an impact. But looking back at it, that I think those two things like played a really outsized role.
0: The other thing that had an outsized role that you probably weren't expecting was NFTs.
1: Yeah. This was um NFTs, you know, Crypto Kitties, like literally, you know, you <laughs> this uh this was something that, you know, we always we in our marketing slide, like, look, CryptoKitties knocked down Ethereum. This one happened on Solana, but we didn't really think about them like Solana's tagline was blockchain and Nasdaq speed and really focused on projects like Serum. But we saw NFTs were um, started to happen on Ethereum and they were interesting because they were forming communities. There were people that were getting into these PFP sets and kind of acting like early bulletin board style social networks, you know, like in the 90s. So we had uh, two engineers from labs build out the smart contracts to define the NFT standard, and kind of like that was the Metaplex being incubated. And as soon as that was launched, and we had like a couple mints that we got together, like we we scoured the earth for anybody that would want to mint on Solana. Nobody really <laughs> wanted to at the time. <laughs> but we got the tools out there, and the decision that we made, which was again a lucky one, was that we should make the tools. Available freely and easy for non-engineering devs to just go mint some art. So we tried to minimize it to the point that it was kind of like WordPress. You still had to be somewhat technically savvy, like clone a GitHub repo and go run through it and then run th- run through the th- through the minting process. But um, that was enough to where we started seeing first, you know, just a few people, and then hundreds, and then thousands. Some cases, it's like half a million NFTs minted. Uh, yeah, half a million NFTs minted a week. We've seen days where it's been two, over two hundred thousand NFTs minted in one day. It's a crazy amount.
0: <laughs> that and that whole period for me felt like it was a total pivot or a light bulb moment in Solana. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this because you start off as like you know Nasdaq speed, right? Your your idea is we can do financial market computational stuff, blockchain for financial markets. And from what I can sense, and this is what I really want to hear from you about, is you figured out, actually, you can be the mass market consumer application. Is that where, is that is where your head is moved to?
1: We Well, I always thought that if we can get the CRM use case to work, then everything else from an engineering perspective will be easy. Because that's a really, really hard thing. That's a central limit order book that runs on chain. I think we're still the only the only smart contract platform where that's functioning. So if we can solve that problem, I thought all the other things would be at least easy from from like a technical perspective. But if kind of but like actually supporting something like NFTs took our team and our ecosystem and a lot of people like in our company like a lot of work because just because you have the tag doesn't mean anyone's going to use it. So you kind of have to go out there and find those folks and support them and those dJ apes mint um that person who who ran the Mint, they didn't they didn't like build any infra to launch it. They had no clue that like they could they ran like their their mint on a Heroku server that went down like instantly because. Instead of you know a few hundred people showing up, they had like fifty thousand people show up. <laughs> so like uh, we like our engineering team like went and like rebuilt their infra like uh, that weekend and like got it up and running. Like basically it was a lot of handholding, um, but because we saw the demand, it was just exciting. Like how could you not like can you know try to figure out and make this work? It's really unexpected where where this stuff's come from. I think with NFTs. Especially because they seem so like kind of silly, like ephemeral, right? Like you can't actually believe that they'd be worth anything. But then you kind of start thinking about it: How does art work? Why is this? Why is my woodcut print from the artist that I like worth anything? Like why did I spend hundreds of dollars on it (laughs) when it's just a print, right? (laughs) And uh, once you once you start thinking. You know, like thinking a bit deeper about it and how communities form and and how culture forms, it be, makes starts making more sense.
0: I also think that the blockchain world is trying to is now starting to figure it out that narratives are the most vital thing in the space, regardless of the technology, because there's always something new, there's always something different coming along, there's always faster, cheaper, whatever it may be, and that being known as the by the narrative for owning a particular class in the space, you know. Bitcoin has done a good job of that eth has done a pretty good job with that and then we're starting to see other chains if they don't stand for something they're nothing because people don't get behind it so you don't get adoption effects in the same way and it feels that some of and what really struck me when we met in Utah is that is the kind of mass adoption consumer layer is something that it feels that you guys are really focused on the kind of people you're talking to, the kind of applications you're doing, the phone, the shop, you know, there's a lot of stuff that makes me think, huh? These guys are actually going after the the bigger picture stuff. You know, we talk about NFTs, like the big picture for NFTs for me, or the next phase is ticketing. I mean, it's a no brainer, and it's much faster way of getting a hundred million people to use blockchain than it is to get them to buy a picture of a penguin. You know, it's it's so the, that consumer phase I think is the next phase, and I think you guys have sniffed that out somewhat.
1: It's the hardest thing um, because what I've noticed is that non-crypto native communities reject crypto and blockchain like they're immune. They have like an immune response, <laughs> and you see that with gaming. You know, I thought gaming would be an extremely obvious thing, and it's really, really slowly and incrementally moving forward, but. You know, when anybody ever announces, like any game announces NFT support, gamers just grow. Like, oh, this is just another way to like milk money off of us, right? Like, so how, where this like consumer breakout things could happen is really, really, really hard to predict. Same, like, step in again was something that none of us expected to get any traction. No, that
0: was the, that was another great accelerant. Super, I I don't
1: know how long lasting it's going to be. But it's proven something, and I think that was really important, like I think people have to start thinking about how I build something useful like that uh, the end user really enjoys, maybe it's running, maybe it's playing the game, and the entertainment value of it is worth the cost of whatever they're spending in that in that game that that's the key part is that like you have to even if there's a component where there's nfts and digital ownership and free markets that the end user is fine with all of that going to zero, because they're effectively buying like a ticket to a show, right, <laughs> or a, whatever, right? Like, and maybe the the outcomes that they're like receiving are more entertainment or health or whatever. Like, their actual real value delivered to people, unless on um, markets, like in and in, in their retirement <laughs> or whatever, or like an investment, like especially like something like a game, you know. Like, does it make sense for some games to have like token driven economies? Like, you can have like a first person shooter with guns that are NFTs and bullets that are the token. And me as a user, I shouldn't be thinking about like these are my retirement bullets. This is my investment in bullets, right? (laughs) But me as a somebody that played a bunch of games, um, I was a lot more involved in RuneScape because it had a free market and you could kind of buy and sell things. And there was a bit of a, my brain was made way more engaged and it was a lot more entertaining, but never when I played it that I think, okay, I'm going <laughs> to, this is going to be my, my like, uh, you know, portfolio of, of like, of, uh, you know, uh, resources like wood and, and like whatever, like gold and stuff like that, RuneScape gold. Um, so there's like a ways to, I think, Make make crypto an entertaining or useful part of something, but I think there's a lot of ways where it just fails completely, and that's where I think developers and um, people working in the stuff have to be really careful. And um, again, like a lot of communities that are not crypto native will reject it outright. So I. I want to see this like figure out how to get us from 10 million people that sign transactions globally. Like this is probably including Solana, MetaMask, all the chains. How many people actually go click sign on any of these wallets? It's probably 10 million it, every globally. How do we get that to 100 million? It, this is a really really hard problem, um, and you know we're throwing darts at a bo- board. Hopefully some of those will stick. I'm seeing a lot of people coming from outside of the main space who are solving some
0: really interesting wallet stuff. So people shouldn't care what chain a, a token is on, you know, an NFTs on. They shouldn't even know. They should be able to transfer it easily, sign it easily, store it easily.
1: Maybe. Those are, again, that's not a, I think, decided question because people care about Bitcoin because it's on yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, but
0: that's a group of people, right? We're talking about getting the random person in the street to be involved in using blockchain technology at scale, not just tokens for for storing wealth and stuff.
1: I think there's some things that that's true. So like USDC transfers, like transferring dollars. I think most people shouldn't care about blockchain. If it's USDC is natively supporting it, it shouldn't really matter to them which one they're using. They should probably use the cheapest, fastest one. Solana. (laughs) But (laughs) that's because the dollars are basically held by USDC, and you're using a representation of it that's kind of trusted. But folks that are like true believers of Bitcoin believe that it's gold, like digital gold, for a certain reason. And you can't kind of move it, like you can't take that concept and move it somewhere else. Similarly, if you truly believe in digital ownership, something has to guarantee it. And that is the chain. Right. Like, yes, yeah,
0: sorry, I'm I'm what I'm not suggesting is that I'm suggesting the wallet should be indifferent. So I can have course. my Solana NFTs and my ETH NFTs,
1: yeah.
0: and it's a seamless experience without that, multiple wallets. 100
1: percent hundred percent That that I think we're still ways away. <laughs> but that should be, you know, like when I started Solana, my initial like like somebody worked at mobile, it's like why isn't signing just natively supported? I literally worked on Secure elements and trust zone at Qualcomm. Like, I know the team that built this thing. (laughs) Like, why don't they do these cryptographic signatures on the, on the, your device and give you a trusted display that cannot be spoofed by any application and like really guarantee that no one can ever steal your seed phrase or mess with that signing process. It just seemed so obvious and so easy for me, but, um, we didn't have the resources or I think the, kind of the right team to to do it until six months ago when we met Awesome.
0: Another area that I think is coming, would love to hear your thoughts for mass adoption is music and that
1: whole industry. I, I've talked to a bunch of people on music and uh, it's also really, really tough because there's a lot of value that's awesome from music NFTs for artists, for platforms even, but it's hard to show that value to the fans yet. And this has been like, I think the biggest challenge. Like, I think but what potentially NFTs could enable is this idea that artists can self publish, set their own royalties. They have that kind of what effectively all the legal financial infrastructure that a reg label provides, do that with a Metaplex, WordPress, Click Next <laughs> right, style thing, and boom, you're done. And you have all of that baked in for life. And that's a really, really powerful tool, but why does the fan care right And it's a it's potentially an amazing thing for like even platforms like Spotify right now I think they give probably eighty to 90 percent of their revenue to the record labels. like if they could instead give that to artists, Spotify would be a lot happier to to give it directly to artists as opposed to the record labels. Um, but why does the fan care? We don't know yet. Right. Like I think.
0: But the point being is, do they need to know? The idea is the. It doesn't necessarily have to be the fan caring about owning the piece of music like an NFT, right? We're anchored on this NFT idea of ownership. But maybe the blockchain rails itself is the best way of divvying up the money amongst the industry in a more equitable, fair, and faster way.
1: But that's. There's a really hard cold start problem there, like the McCaff's law problem, right? Like, how do you get that initial network from zero to one, right? Because somebody like
0: Spotify is going to do it
1: because they have to. It's like the
0: the reason people like Meta are working on Web3 is they know they have to because game theory would suggest that the pie is too big for them not to be attacked. It's the same for Spotify.
1: I would hope so. So um, I hope things like that, like really transform Art, like how artists make money. Like we already see just for digital art, it's been like life-changing for a lot of these folks. Um, There's a girl from high school that made a beluga whale NFT collection that sold for $1.4 million. And a bunch of that money went to the conservation of beluga whales. I think that was her biggest check that nonprofit ever got. But that changed her life, right? Now she's probably going to be an artist, right? And like, <laughs> and like she knows how this how this stuff works, um, and uh, I think the long tail of artists on on crypto actually do pretty well. there's a lot of nFT mints that are not the million dollar mints that you hear about, but a lot of them do twenty thirty thousand dollars and that's um, massive Money, yeah f- for artists that are especially like doing this part time right just for fun that's uh that's life changing um,
0: what's the idea behind hardware and the phone? Because obviously, people think you're crazy doing that.
1: Um, yeah. So probably if I didn't spend a career at Qualcomm, this wouldn't happen. Half of the Solana team wasn't ex-Qualcomm folks. This would have never happened. Um, and if I had not met Jason, who is the founder of Awesome Privacy, which is the company, that the OEM, that's building the phone, this would have never happened either. Um, and he he was uh, the architect of the iPad Pro, so he's a, an awesome hardware engineer, can build just magical things. He, he like worked on crazy things, like uh, James Cameron's submarine door, the thing that withstood the Mariana Trench <laughs> pressure. <laughs> so he worked on that, uh, did special projects for like Johnny Eve and stuff. Um, he built this company to build an amazing phone. And when I met him, I just kind of mind him with him that Privacy and Web3 just are super intricately related. You, No Web3 developer takes a username and password. They don't want to know who you are. They want to know is like, how do you connect your wallet? Right. And what they care about is, are you signing securely? Like, is your, <laughs> is your setup correct? And like, they want to know less about the human and more about giving a great experience. Like, and, and that's actually privacy first and has no, there's no web3 business model that depends on stealing people's data and shoving them ads so it's just kind of inherently transforms how things are monetized in the web and for privacy to really take hold you need to have a business model that depends on it right otherwise it's going to be like the privacy that google and apple sell you <laughs> right so i think it just kind of makes sense that if if we get to a, an age where there is there are 100 million people that are actively signing things in crypto, I think that it has to be on mobile because that's the device that most people use. And it has to be secure. And all the hardware to make it secure and easy is already there. Secure elements have been in devices since biometrics. So have, so have been trust zone execution. Like when you do face ID, your fingerprint scan, it's using the same exact pieces of hardware. So all we're doing is, you know, we have like we don't have a thirty-person team working on this phone. Awesome, awesome. The OEM does. We have about five folks working on the software layer changes that we need to make, and it's adding bip thirty-nine, which is, you know, uh, most folks that have used ledgers, you know, remember entering those passwords. It's basically the the kind of style password, uh, you know, seed seed creation and recovery um, that's going directly to the hardware a wallet connector. So when a Web3 app loads, you don't know if it doesn't ask you which of these 50 wallets you support. (laughs) And then another one asks you which of these different 50 wallets do you support. It just automatically happens because it knows the operating system has your seed. Obviously, that means a Web3 dApp store right, to support these applications. And payments, where we want that experience to make payments to be as delightful as using Apple Pay. There's no... You know, the, the context switching through like an app link or going into, you know, fandom as awesome as they are, the experience of using the web view for the mobile application is still pretty gnarly, right? There's all these transitions and links, all that stuff goes away and becomes, I think, as magical as, you know, using Apple Pay. Like that, that's kind of my, my gold standard. Um, and I think we can do a victory lap if. There's an application that's built for this device that is so good that somebody goes and acquires a device. It means that crypto is some real world use case that people value, right? And they value the UX for it. And that would be awesome. I think that would be like an early sign that we are heading to a world where there is, uh, you know, billions of people using crypto on on a day to day. So it doesn't sound
0: like you have high expectations for the phone. You want to put it out there, see what happens and... Um, Not in terms of the have, quality of the phone, but in terms of the sales and the adoption of the phone.
1: I worked on uh, Amazon Fire and uh, the Windows Phone and a whole bunch of other ones. All those things failed. <laughs> so you're the kiss <laughs> of death
0: is what you're telling me.
1: <laughs> their target was they needed to sell millions of devices a year like out of the gate. We actually don't. This is the cool thing, is that if we hit to like 25,000, 50,000 sales, um, that's a better distribution channel for Web3 devs. To have direct access to web to like active Web3 users on mobile without any restrictions, without thirty percent fees and NFT sales, right? That's a better distribution channel than going through the big app stores and jumping through all these hoops. So when you give it out uh, exp-
0: why don't you give it out for free? Why don't you try and scale? Um,
1: it? free is the worst price, right? Like I think I get it, but something bad but something that scales fast. It is priced, it's a high end device. Typically, this device with these specs would cost 1400 bucks from Samsung. It's 1000 And as soon as we get this thing out to market and it works and all the software, like all the bugs are out, I think we want to do a low-end device um, that is as close to the cheapest price that we can make. And then scale it out. And there's potentially... Because you're right, right, if
0: you've got enough people on it, it's a bit of a chicken and egg, but if you get enough yeah. people... Then it becomes, as you said, a very good place to build an app.
1: Exactly. But like our, our goal is not, is not to go to general consumer yet because crypto's not there yet. It's to build an awesome device for crypto folks and then build an awesome application store for devs, right? And when that kind of network effects like those that, that wheel starts starts flowing and we see really good applications that are mobile first. Drive adoption. I think this is really the moment to go consumer, right? That's when we buy the Super Bowl ad or whatever.
0: So what gets you personally excited? What do you think that's coming in this space? whether Solana's involved in it or not, but what gets you excited? What do you think Fuck, this is going to be huge, or this is going to be cool, whatever it is, whatever your benchmark
1: is? I was really like uh, like really taking aback how quickly capital can form and how quickly users can uh, coordinate that capital constitution DAO was amazing yeah exactly so that was maybe 20, 10 20,000 people that raised 40 million dollars to do something kind of silly by the constitution um, imagine if we had 100 million people with crypto native crypto users that were active users could they coordinate to like buy every coal plant in the world and shut it down like once that ability is there, right, once the execution is clear and you have you as an end user have a direct, meaningful impact to make it go, it's a really, really powerful thing, right? You're not like, you're not like, you know, sending a letter to your representative to go talk to Congress. Three months later, nothing happens. This is literally like press now. This happens <laughs> like, you know, like now, right? That That's a really, really powerful tool to for action. So that, I think, to me is both the scary thing and like the really exciting thing about crypto enables is that it really, I think, eliminates a lot of the bottlenecks that we have in decision making and fi- financing things in the world.
0: The, I mean, I spoke to, and you know him as well, Kimball Musk on Real Vision. I don't think the interview's out yet, but about this, because I think the philanthropy angle is massive for, for, you know, blockchain technology and crypto overall, because it's a way of organizing people with sort of accountability in a way that doesn't exist in, in in large charitable organizations. Think of something like the World Wildlife Fund. I mean, who the fuck knows where the money goes? But it's not where you want it to go. But you can coalesce capital super fast on on super specific things with a set of rules.
1: My my cow I kind of look at it is that like Facebook gave us a social graph. You're always going through some intermediary. And crypto is giving us a super connected graph. Everyone is directly connected to everyone else like that. And that's a kind of insane thing to think about that you're in the same chat room, like in with, with everyone else. <laughs> Talking of
0: chat rooms, that feels like another thing that needs to get solved a bit better than Discord. Have you, have you guys thought about that kind of application as well? Because it's, it's a bad experience so far, right?
1: um I, I personally like discord i think it's uh it's, it's chaos. awesome i mean
0: when you've got more than you know a thousand <laughs> people it's utter chaos
1: well yeah it's it's really hard to scale groups to hundreds of thousands right like and um moderation and all this tooling is always a little crufty, but the fact that it it can handle that much load is it, pretty awesome yeah i mean it's fast it's and efficient but it's just not great where stuff like this i think I think in a lot of ways, you don't need like crypto native apps. There's an opportunity for if you're a founder and you believe in like, this is your thing. You love communication. There's an opportunity to go build crypto native versions of these things and potentially be the next Discord or the next Twitter. I think that clearly exists, but I think it's not, may not be necessary because I think. Users that are using these networks, they are grouping themselves based on NFTs or governance or how they participate in crypto. That's their kind of the social graph. And then they communicate over Twitter, over Discord, over anything, right? Um, There's an opportunity to build tools that cater to those folks, make it easier, the better UX, like reducing fraud by verifying that like when I post my, you know, NFT that is actually mine and it's not a, a scam version of it. Like there's a bunch of awesome UX and awesome security features that these companies could add. But I think what's cool is that in some ways they're irrelevant. <laughs> right. Like I I'm in the, if I'm in the monkey DAO, I don't it's not like I'm in a Yahoo group or a Discord group. I'm in the monkey DAO and it's kind of doesn't matter where the monkey DAO hangs out, right?
0: <laughs> no, that's right. You know, I love to see the fact that community doesn't take place in one place anymore. It just takes place all over the place. Yeah. And you know, I think we need to make that experience a bit better at some point. You know, tying together what's being talked about on Twitter and what's being talked about in your in your Discord group because and what's being talked about in your Telegram group or whatever. If you could put that somewhere to keep on top of the shit without having fifteen apps open it would be nice.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen <laughs> until we have like a, a AGI, basically that does it for you.
0: <laughs> so, anything else on the roadmap that you're excited about? The one thing I wanted to talk to you about because another, another thing I've noticed is your hacker houses. I think that's really interesting. What, what are you doing there?
1: So, um, so, this was after Breakpoint. Breakpoint was our first conference. It was the first conference after we've all been locked down on COVID and had this kind of amazing year, and the energy that everyone felt when we got to break out was just like insane. You know, one I, I didn't expect that many people to show up, and the people that showed up were just awesome. And a bunch of the devs they started a hacker house where they were building applications, there were prizes and stuff, and we wanted to continue it, and um, we basically organized these events, different. Different place in the in the world, different city. We get a house or whatever, a, a venue together, and people show up. And uh, I think we had like over 9,000 to, or something like that developers go through these over the last year.
0: So you've created a developer and, community.
1: Yeah. Properly. I mean, they're meeting each yeah. other. They're getting together. <laughs> And like Singapore, Seoul, like Prague, like London, San Francisco, like Miami, like basically everywhere that anywhere that we, we thought devs might, might hang out. And um, what I think that translates, I hope, is that our hackathons that are actually, I think, a bit more formal, get way more traction. And um, despite this massive market downturn, this hackathon that just happened had the most registrations, like 14,000, twice as many as the previous one and more teams submitted a project 700 teams the previous record was 550 so despite like all the markets you know being in the shitter <laughs> devs are still <laughs> interested in like getting into crypto starting companies and uh that's been awesome the biggest kind of thing that i know that the reason why i know it's real is because when you look at funding um the block published like Solana funding stats. And you look at the amount of funding that's happening like month over month or quarter over quarter, it's still rising. It's been over a billion dollars in funding to teams. That's, you can't fake that, right? You can't, uh, that, that's real money that's venture capital is investing into C level teams. And, those teams are now like on the hook to grind for product market fit, figure out how to get users to use crypto, right? And that's really the driving engine, so.
0: Yeah, I found that massively encouraging during this cycle. And I've been in this space since 2013. This time it's different. It's, there's so many people building. I think the VC cycle came at the right point. So everybody's got capital and they're all working. Everyone's busy working now, as opposed to feeling miserable and shitty about what the market's yeah. doing. So <laughs> yeah. do I think that, that has been a really different thing. We've lost less participants to the network over this period of time. Sure, they've become less active, but we've lost less participants, which again shows something. How have you? As a final question, how have you dealt with the fact you launched 2020, you all feel like heroes, it all goes up in a straight line and then comes down 87% and you're like, oh, really? How do you, how do you deal with the psychology of that?
1: Because it's, you know, well, for us, it's at least uh, not the first rodeo. Like, we literally joined, st- I, you know, st- started building Solana, the company at the tail end of the last bull market and just oh. saw ETH drop 70% in front of me and like while we were trying to raise money. So, <laughs> and then having two years of like nothing, right? And, and like just. Had you raised, did you raise any money? So are you like
0: one of the companies now? Who's, who's raised the money and you're just building through the winter. Did you raise money back in 2018, 17?
1: Basically, right. We raised money in April 2018, which was already ETH had dropped from its high by about 40%. But there were still a lot of... Um, what that bull market created is a lot of folks that invested in the ETH ICO. They were smart engineers, they weren't funds yet. And that bull market for Ethereum, a lot of those... Literally Ethereum folks funded Solana. <laughs> Despite what many people think it wasn't like some shadowy cabal of, of, <laughs> of venture capital. It was a bunch of like engineers who thought that what we were building was kind of crazy and kind of cool. Um, so that was that was really, I think, what Ethereum created.
0: So you so you raised the money in, in April 2018, starting to become a difficult market. You launch in what March 2020?
1: Yeah. Right in the, in the worst possible, what we thought the worst possible time, but ended up being the best possible time because that literally marked the bottom. That like, horror, like COVID and the stock market crashing at Bitcoin was literally like, I think we couldn't have timed it better, I, I guess.
0: <laughs> and did you find that building over that 2018, 19 period? Was good because it was less distraction about the tokens, you know, or indifferent. It was hard.
1: Things. It was hard. We were um, working a lot, under resourced, always stressed about runway. Um, and you can never, you were never sure if this was going to work or not. It was uh, it was a lot more stressful, I'd uh, Stress is important, right? It's not a, uh, it's. <laughs> You as a a founder's coming into the space, right now is a really good time to come in despite the stress. Right, like I think the problem with the bull market is that you may raise a lot of money, but you will not get signal that you have product market fit and you're building something right. And when the bull market crashes, a lot of those companies may be dead or underwater and not fundable because all they did was raise a bunch of capital, but not create growth or PMF. And what really drives the next round is growth, not, not how much you raised in the previous round and not your valuation in the previous round.
0: <laughs> no, it's all about adoption in the end. I mean, without it, you've got nothing. It's, you might have the best tech in the world. If you don't get adoption, you've not got anything. You know, we've seen, we've seen this over and over again.
1: The great thing in the bear market your adoption is relative to everyone else. If you're the only company that has like the users, right, even if it's small number, that may actually be enough to get to like raise enough capital to stretch things out until like things really pick up.
0: And so, look, fascinating to talk to you. Really appreciate your time. And uh, let's try and get through this bear market and let's see what comes out the other side of it.
1: For sure. Thank you
0: so much. Hi, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed listening, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming literally everything, from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital assets video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 300,000 members around the world understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation, and maybe of all time. And even better, Real Vision Crypto's completely free. All you need to do is input your email address and you get full access to all of the videos and the incredible emails too. Please visit realvisioncrypto.com, that's realvisioncrypto.com, and start learning about this incredible world.